1 Corinthians 4. We're continuing our walk through uh, 1 Corinthians this morning, and we're learning that there's two ways to live. There's the way of the world, and there's the way of love. The way of the world is the way of the world because it's simply the way to live if you are simply living with all the resources you have, even the best resources. If you come from a solid family, if you have an incredible education, the best that we can drum up as is still merely human, says Paul. And that's the way of the world. Uh, the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright is on record saying, I would rather be honestly arrogant than hypocritically humble. He said, I would rather be honestly arrogant than hypocritically humble. And isn't that choice the way of the world? Because left to ourselves, we can only be honestly arrogant or hypocritically humble. But the way of love that Paul unpacks, because it's shaped like a cross, namely Jesus' cross, enables us to be honestly humble. And not arrogant, but strangely bold. And so I would love to continue to learn about this way of love. We'll begin again in chapter 4, the first five verses. So you can follow along as I read. This is God's word. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation or praise from God. Thanks, Lord, for this word. Would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just learn new information tonight, uh, this morning, but that we would encounter you, Jesus. Would your glory be felt and experienced through your word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I saw an old friend last week, and when we remembered that we were both in the same college fraternity, uh, much to my wife's uh, sort of uh, amusement, I hope, uh, amusement's the right word, we immediately gave each other secret handshakes and started singing our songs together and started sharing stories. And then he shared the story about how he was offered a place in this fraternity uh, during what is called Rush Week. If you don't know what Rush Week is, it's when uh, freshmen, men, and women visit each and every fraternity and sorority on a college campus in hopes of making a good impression. And the members, those in the inner circle, let's say, size up the rushers, those in the outer circle. And then invitations to the inner circle are offered at the week's end. And so for most of you, this sounds like the inner ring of hell. <laughs> and it is. I'm just going to be honest. It was for me, at least. Every house I visited as an insecure 18-year-old, I experienced what I will call the tyranny of scrutiny. 
everybody was scrutinizing me. Everybody was sizing me up. And I am really skilled in being a social chameleon, meaning I can change and adapt according to the environment. Just I just have this third sort of, or a sixth sense. I have an ability to adapt. And so I was working that that week. <laughs> And I've been on the other side of this tyranny as well. I've experienced Rush Week as a member of the inner circle. And we would, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let you in on this. It's pretty ugly. Uh, it, it makes the bachelor look pretty tame. But uh, we would stay up late at night every night that week and scrutinize every single person who came in to our house, wondering if we would offer them an invitation into our inner circle. We had PowerPoint slides of their pictures. And stats. This is the tyranny of scrutiny. Rush week and I think Greek life in general is an incredibly easy target to criticize. But isn't what I just described for you all exactly what an average week in your life is like? I mean, Rush Week, in my opinion, is just a distillation of everyday life. The tyranny of scrutiny. Which is why we make fun of Rush Week. Because we hate it. Because we hate the tyranny of scrutiny. But we live it every day. I think one place that we see this the most is on social media. I think of social media actually as basically a digital rush week. The only difference is it's not a week. It's like always. It's like all the time. It's every waking hour. It's actually every sleeping hour too. If you think about it, your social media presence is available to somebody at any time, at any place, anywhere. And we are all aware of this. It is a digital tyranny of scrutiny. People are making judgments about you. Do you know that? They are. They just are. It can be good judgments or very bad judgments. Talk about a tyranny of scrutiny. And so whenever you post something, does it not feel like your identity is on the line? You think, I wonder if anybody will like what I just put up there. And we start living for the likes. If you've ever put something out there, you know the feeling when you grab your phone and you're like, I'm, I'm bored. I'm standing in Chipotle at line. I have nothing to do except stand here. I'm going to pull my phone out. And then you tap the Facebook icon or you tap the Instagram icon or you tap the Twitter icon or whatever else it is. And there's a charge that goes through you because you are thinking one thing. I wonder if anybody liked what I posted. Which is another way of saying, I wonder if anybody likes me. Sammy Rhodes talks about living for likes. He says, the danger of posting something online for me lies in the way I track its reception like a new iPhone about to be delivered to my doorstep obsessively and compulsively. I want to feel the rush of approval. And look, it's great when you get the likes, but what happens when you don't? 
And what happens when you live for approval and then don't get that approval? We get destroyed inside. And more and more research is showing, actually, uh, that young children who grew up with social media are, are those who struggle with symptoms of social anxiety and isolation. We're seeing all kinds of studies come out. But even if you do get the approval, living for approval can also destroy. Because when is enough? And at what cost is living for likes? Living for approval. And so my question is, this morning, are you living under the tyranny of scrutiny? Other people sizing you up. Do you feel what Elaine de Baton calls status anxiety? Well, something like that was going on in ancient Corinth, if you can believe it. Paul says in verse 3, if you take your eyes to the text, he says, It is a very small thing that I should be judged. And the word here for judged is in the Greek, Anakrino, which means scrutinized or sized up. He says, it's a very small thing that I would be scrutinized by you or any human court. This is what was happening behind Paul's back. These young Christians were sizing Paul up as a leader and criticizing Paul. Saying he wasn't handsome enough. Saying to Paul, you know, he wasn't tall enough. He wasn't impressive enough. He wasn't smooth enough. It was rush week in Corinth. And Paul was not making a good impression. But don't miss what Paul says. He says here, it is a very small thing that I would be scrutinized by you or anybody else. Don't you want to be able to say that? I mean, when I read this text, I'm like, I want to say that and I want to believe that. And then I want to live out of that. I want to be able to say it is a very small thing to be scrutinized, even by you all. It is so tempting as your pastor to live for your approval. And you all work, you all have Colleagues, it is so tempting to live for their approval. You have at least some followers on Facebook. You want their approval. Do you want freedom from the tyranny of scrutiny? Paul is going to teach us the secret to this freedom. It's an open secret. It's not really a secret because he's talking about it. He's telling us how we can rest from this horrible condition of living for others' praise. And the answer is right in our text in verse 5. He says, essentially, we have the only praise that is needed. God's praise. The commendation word there in verse 5 is literally praise. Living for human praise, which is temporary and fickle, is the tyranny of scrutiny, but living for God's praise grants you what we could call the liberty of security. And so we need to get this really clear right at the front end. Okay? The God in the Bible is not a cosmic rush week. 
And that's how many of us live or many Christians live. They live daily under the tyranny of scrutiny from others and God Almighty. It's like a double whammy. God is always sizing you up. He is anachrizoing you every day. He's scrutinizing you. But don't forget what Paul said, just said, at the very end of chapter 3. He says, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And it doesn't take much effort to look through Paul's letters to say that he makes much of God not being a scrutinizer of us, but a loving father of us because we are in his son, Jesus. No, no, God doesn't scrutinize you. He accepts you in Christ and there is no condemnation in Christ. Justification in the Bible as a big word really is just this great truth that the verdict is already in. You are accepted in Christ and because of what Jesus has done for you. Let me be clear. We are sinners and do not deserve this acceptance. But Jesus was sinless and he lived. He actually came to the earth in order to live for you, to die for you, to be raised for you and then to be united to you. And that's exactly what anybody trusting Jesus and not themselves has. They have a restful soul in that knowledge. And this is how Paul can say in this text, I am not aware of anything against myself. How can Paul say that? He's like, I, I, I scan my conscience and I'm actually not aware of anything against myself. It's because he has a rested soul. Because he knows that he is right with God. So the tyranny of scrutiny dissolves into the liberty of security. And so whatever Paul is saying to us this morning, which we will unpack a little bit more, we must understand that there is a big difference between God's judgment and human judgment. And as we stand in the forgiveness and the fullness of Jesus, we need not fear God's judgment. Liberty of security, if we have it, plays out in two important areas this morning. In our ministries and in our minds. Now, don't check out in this first point because some of you are thinking, I'm not a minister. We all are ministers. When we stop um, living for other people's praise, it reminds us that we have a mission. And this mission is to serve others. We are a priesthood of believers. And so if you believe you are a priest who is called to serve others as a priest would. And so how does the liberty of security impact our ministry? Well, the first is this. We start to love servanthood. We don't just accept servanthood as a concept. We actually live it and love it. And this is what Paul does right away. He says, this is how you should regard us. Talking about himself and any other leader, any other minister in the church. He says, you should regard us as a servant of Christ. Do you see it? Verse 1. Paul takes the lowest of lowest status in the Greco-Roman world. The slave. 
and says, that is how you should regard me. Historian and Bible scholar Ben Witherington calls this Paul's anti-sophistic strategy. Now, sophistic is a technical word, but we get the word sophisticated from it. There were sophists who were sophisticated in that day. And, and it's clear that Paul is on an anti-sophist trajectory here. He's actually going against that impulse. The Roman world loved sophisticated people. And sophists were professional, impressive people. And so Paul says, I am a slave, not a sophist. If you want an analogy for my ministry, Paul says, then look at the slave. Not the sophist. And that's true for you as well. God's grace frees us to put others first. And so we love servanthood. We also start to love stewardship. Paul gives us another metaphor for leadership in this text. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, there is... Uh, the, the, the steward in that day was very similar to the slave in this sense. The steward was a house slave. A house slave was someone who simply ran the house while the master was away. Was given access to all the aspects of the house. And they simply followed orders. And get this, this is important. They were judged not by anything except how faithfully they stewarded what they were given. And so a leader, according to Paul here, is not a ruler, but a slave who exalts others and stewards the things of their master. It's a totally upside down understanding of leadership and influence that Paul gives us in this text. One of my favorite examples of this comes from the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's at the beginning of Prince Narnia, or I'm sorry, Prince Caspian. Peter, Susan, and Edmund, and Lucy are all at a rail station, and they are magically transported to this castle ruin. If you've read the book or seen the movie, you probably can remember this scene. They're confused about where they are because everything looks like in shambles. But then they suddenly discover a door, and then the door leads to stairs, and then the stairs leads to a treasure room. And as they look around the treasure room it dawns on them that this is where they once ruled as kings and queens in narnia thousands of years ago apparently england and narnia is on a different time scheme well in this room are the gifts that aslan gave them in the first book that we read peter's sword and shield susan's bow and arrow lucy's cordial and dagger And when they grab these gifts, they come alive again to their mission. And that is exactly how ministry works. We are given the mysteries of God. Paul will say in other letters, we are given spiritual gifts, gifts from the Holy Spirit. We are walked into a treasure room and there is a specific item specifically for you. And you are called to specifically steward it. And God will not judge you by your success simply by whether or not you use the thing. And that is a freeing proposition. We do not need to be results driven in our ministry. The 
problem is when we live for other people's praise, we minister for results. Because that's what people praise. But when we live for God's praise, we rest in the simple task of stewardship. And so what I would like you to do is to simply recognize this temptation. We'll call it the inner Pharisee. The temptation to be a Pharisee. The Bible gives us a picture of ministers who lived for God's praise. I'm sorry, for man's praise. Big difference, right? Right? Those of you tracking. Um, They are called Pharisees. And John gives us a picture of the Pharisees. He writes in chapter 12, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So the Pharisee impulse is to minister to others for their applause and not the applause of God. And what's the answer to this? Well, Paul says a, a person who has a changed heart by the news of Jesus who knows they are right with God because of Jesus. And so they live for His praise and not the praise of anybody else. He says in Romans 2.29, a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. And so we can reject the inner Pharisee because we have praise from God. I said there's another liberty, uh, there's another liberty of security, and it's in our minds. Liberty of security can be in our minds. Eric Johnson, I love this, says that there is a soul care agenda in the Bible, and I think we see it on display in verses 3 through 5. When we experience the liberty of security versus the tyranny of scrutiny in our minds, three things will happen. Number one, you won't judge yourself. Yourself. In verses 3 through 4, Paul writes, I do not even judge myself or scrutinize myself. One translation gets this right. He says, It says, I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord Himself who will examine me and decide. Paul lives before an audience of one. And he is liberated from human scrutiny. Even when that human is himself. So you can't judge yourself in this liberty. You also can't judge others. In verse 5, Paul writes, Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Now, does this mean that we can't speak prayer-saturated, humble correction and feedback? It can't mean that. Because, after all, Paul is giving humble feedback to the church in Corinth. He says in Galatians, When, not if, but when... You correct someone. Do so with gentleness and humility. So, so we know Paul's not saying something like, just don't say anything to any brother or sister in Christ. But he is saying there is only one authoritative judge and there is one authoritative time for judging. And it's in the Lord and it's on the day of the Lord. 
So Paul says, be careful about making judgments. You don't see everything. You can't see like the Lord does what is hidden, like motivations and other things that are in the dark, according to this language here. But the Lord does. And so wait until Jesus does it. One way of looking at this is considering the paintings of Bob Ross. Yes, you heard me right. Uh, I remember Bob Ross as a kid. Um, and my sister and I would, would sort of watch Bob Ross on the public PBS uh, public uh, broadcasting. A little known fact, I grew up in Muncie, Indiana, where Bob Ross held his studio. Fun fact. Well, my sister and I would groan around the 22-minute mark. Do you know why? You know why, if you've watched Bob Ross. Around 22 minutes, he has this amazing canvas paint, this amazing landscape. And then he takes his, his, his scalpel or whatever that is, and he gets the brown. You know what I'm saying? And he just goes right down the middle. One massive brown streak right down the middle. And he says, let's just put a happy tree right there. And my sister and I are like, no, that's not happy. That's terrible. You just ruined the thing. But then around the 28, 29 minute mark, Bob Ross always makes it right. Always. He turns it around. And I don't want to be, you know, irreverent. We shouldn't make final judgments until it's all wrapped up. Paul is saying you shouldn't make final judgments until the Lord's day. Because only the Lord is judge. And only Jesus can do it perfectly. The third thing happens in your mind. You don't fear the judgment day. Yourself. Many of us don't like or don't know what to do with this doctrine of judgment because it's hard to square with the doctrines of grace. Can we just be honest for a moment? Is that not a struggle? Is that not a tension that you're experiencing even this morning? Like how on earth does this day of judgment square with the reality that I'm adopted into God's family? How can he be father and judge, right? This is something, is this te- or did I just introduce a tension into your, into your theology? It's a good tension to feel. But instead of ignoring the tension or even divorcing the two aspects, Let's not divorce what God has put together, what he has married. So yes, we are saved by grace. We are not condemned. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are saved by grace and we are not condemned. Yes, the scriptures teach a judgment where our works and our words will come under the judgment of God. That judgment is not judgment to hell. You're in Christ. Moreover, being in Christ and the weight that Scripture puts to that truth can put away a fear of the judgment day like many of you fear the dentist. Or if you're driving around without updated plates... And you see the police person kind of driving along. And you're like, please don't stop behind me. Because you'll see my plates are not renewed. Speaking from experience. (laughs) 
you live with this sort of fear always of, ah, oh, ah. Oh. Well, in that case, you need to anchor down in the realities that you are in Christ. You are, you are in Christ. And there is no condemnation for you. He was condemned in your place. And if you're at the foot of the cross, the judgment day is not something that you fear in that sense. Instead, the judgment day is an aspect of God's goodness and grace because judgment means that evil will be made right. In fact, the doctrine of God's judgment is good news to people who have suffered injustice. The doctrine of judgment is good news to people who have experienced the sting of an unresolved evil perpetrated against them. Maybe it's fair to say that only those who live in a comfortable culture like North America have trouble with this doctrine. But regardless, if you're in Christ, we can see this as good news. And so, live for God's praise. Paul teaches us two humanly contradictory things in this passage. Number one, God sees you truly. He sees in the dark. He sees you fully. And number two, God loves you fully if you are in Christ. Remember, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And so when both of these things connect, you will start to live for God instead of living for others. So every time you post, say to yourself, Lord, I already have your praise. Do I need to post this? I mean, you can simply ask, am I living for man's praise right now? It's just a great question to ask. Anytime you post. Or when you're at work, maybe ask this as you turn off the keys to your car. Who am I working for today? Ultimately, working for the Lord who knows you and loves you might liberate you from the tyranny of scrutiny wherever you find that at your workplace. Are you completely and constantly rehearsing words of judgment somebody said over you years ago? Are these words like stained into your soul? I think this verse gives you the authority to stop listening to that voice. If you're in Christ. There is no condemnation. Sammy Rhodes is right. He says, approval is a lover who will always break your heart. Unless that approval is from the only court that matters. When Paul says, it is a very small thing that I be scrutinized by you or any other human court, the word that he actually uses is dead. He says, it's a very small thing that I would be scrutinized by a human day. What is he doing? He's drawing a connection to the Lord's day. The day in which he is anticipating the Lord himself, seeing him face to face and saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come to my rest. 
And when you have an anticipation and a hope for that day that overshadows human days, that is the freedom that Paul is offering us this morning, that God is offering us. The only heart that matters, the only court that matters ultimately is the Lord's. And so let's live for His praise. Lord, we ask that this text would do its work in our hearts this morning as we encounter and experience the tyranny of scrutiny. Would we understand that there is a freedom where we can actually say to these courts, these millions and millions and millions of individual human courts casting judgment on us at every given moment, Lord, would we be able to in good conscience say it matters very little? When they accuse me of doing wrong, can I, before your presence and in the freedom of your presence, say, I am right with God. I'm right with you, God. But even that judgment I I give to you. Ultimately, my hands are in your, my, my life is in your hands. And would that liberate us and would that free us, Lord, to live for you and not for others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.